You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1093 of the Lots on Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, coming to you on a Tuesday evening into Wednesday. And thank you, as always, for joining us on the podcast today. Make sure to make the Lots on Hawks podcast your first listen each and every day. And check us out for free on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Today's podcast will be a mailbag with myself and myself uh, talking about all kinds of things, taking your questions, and I appreciate all the uh, inquiries as always. But first, some new stuff at the top of the show in advance of the final preseason game on Thursday and uh, plenty more to get to after that. Um, a hat tip to Kevin Schnard of Hawks.com and Sarah Spitzer of the AJC um, for their practice information on Tuesday. Um, all signs point to Nate McMillan still treating the preseason finale on Thursday as a dress rehearsal of sorts. That's been his plan the entire way, and obviously they won't be playing guys 35, 40 minutes in that game, but you might see a somewhat regular rotation, uh, at least if everybody's available and playing on Thursday, which is pretty intriguing, and obviously the Hawks have not, I would say the Hawks have taken the preseason more seriously than a lot of teams have. At the same time, it's not been quite what you would normally expect to see in a game that actually counts, so we'll get more of a preview of that on Thursday. McMillan did say on Tuesday that they had almost everyone available in practice. That's obviously encouraging. And uh, some of that was that he passed along. It was encouraging to see guys like DeLon Wright and Cam Reddish and Kevin Herter and Dillon Gallinari playing together on the second unit. They, uh, Nate is definitely big into keeping guys in roles, keeping units together. That's been a theme of his tenure, even dating back to last season. So obviously a pretty consistent thing there. Also, DeLon Wright returned to practice on Tuesday after missing Monday with the ankle tweak. That's probably a good sign for his status overall. And according to Nate, the biggest question mark in terms of availability for Thursday is Clint Capella. Now, of course, that that does not include Anika Kongwu, who's going to be out for a little bit, obviously. Uh, but in terms of guys who could be playing on Thursday, Capella is the biggest question mark. No surprise there. He's had the uh, he's had very little work the the entire time in the preseason, and there's not a whole lot of incentive to play him. If he does play on Thursday, um, I would say it's probably going to be very limited. He just started he just started doing live work this week, so keep that in perspective. But the general belief is that everybody else will be available by Thursday, and we'll see what happens with Capella. But obviously, that's pretty encouraging all the way around. That would include Trey Young, who's missed the last missed the last two games with his uh, with his contusion, etc. Also, McMillan said that Gorgie Jang, who left early with a hand issue in the last game on Saturday, has gotten treatment and also participated in practice the last couple of days. So um, some pretty encouraging stuff there. So all signs are pretty good on the injury front. Uh, potentially a question mark with Capella and a Kongwu is still out, but good stuff on Hunter and Herter and Lou, uh, not Lou, and DeLon Wright and Trey Young. Lots of positive stuff there, and we might see the entire Hawks roster, at least without Kongwu, on Thursday. Um, elsewhere on the news front, there was an interview by Kevin Herter um, given to Chris Kircher of The Athletic that has some interesting extension stuff in it. As a reminder at the top for some context, the extension deadline for rookie extensions, which is Kevin Herter, obviously Trey Young had his done early, early, early in the offseason, but Herter's extension deadline is Monday, October 18th, so this coming Monday, at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Um, the, the rule is that basically at 6 p.m. Eastern on the day before the regular season starts, which is actually Tuesday. The Hawks don't play on Tuesday, but that's when the season starts. So that's what the deadline is for everybody in that draft class, which includes Kevin Herter. And as I said, he talked to, he talked to, the, uh, to the Athletic about this, and that's worth a read for sure in full. I want to spotlight, though, the comments about the extension talks in particular. 
Uh, Herter told Chris Kirscher that he kind of treated last year like a contract year going into the season, and that he'll do the same this year if they don't find an extension. Plus, he talked about just wanting to help the team win. I'm going to read a, a full quote now from the athletic story from Herter, and I quote, I'm as confident as ever. I think both sides are saying the right things and want to get something done. Obviously, once you put pen to paper, you, you never truly know. I'm trying to let my agent and Travis handle it as much as they can. It could be something that goes right up until one of the last days. I hope it doesn't. Hopefully, we'll get something done freaking tomorrow. I'm as confident as I've ever been. I think both sides want to get something done. It's obviously just coming up with the right value, end quote. So that's a pretty encouraging quote. Obviously, all sides have incentive to be positive in the media about extension talks, but Herder kind of went, you know, I would say the next step beyond that in terms of excitement and intrigue and encouragement and optimism on the extension talks. Only a few days left as you're hearing this podcast, but, you know, there is some optimism. I've heard that on all sides that everybody's actually like genuinely intrigued and hopefully, hopefully it's going to get, going to get done. Um, there's obviously something to weigh on all sides. You know, John Hollinger projects four years, $85 million. That's a lot for Herder. It's a reasonable figure, I think, for Herder to actually want to sign it. I don't think the Hawks are going to be going that high right now, honestly, given all these circumstances in play. My personal feelings, and something I talked about a lot with John Collins last year, and I think it even more applies to Kevin Herter, honestly, is that guys who are not in the max or the near max territory, the team needs to feel like it's getting a really good value to sign an extension a year early. Because once you do that as the team, you're taking on all of the risk a year early and taking it away from the player. Um, I think Herter is not projected to be a starter this year, which doesn't matter too, too much. He's going to be in rotation and play a lot. But even if he blows up, he's not going to get the max. If he has a great year, he might get like a four-year, $90 million offer, maybe 100 at the absolute ceiling. And honestly, if that happens and he blows up and earns that money, you match it or you give it to him yourself and you're probably in a good position. But I would hesitate to pay market value right now as the Hawks in some respects because of what I just said. Like, you're in a danger zone where you might overpay a touch, and with your with your electric tax concerns, all that stuff. If they, if you care about that, and they probably they probably do on some level. You don't want to go too crazy, although you still want to lock them up. And if you're on Herder's side, it kind of just depends on on risk tolerance. You know, a lot of guys want to get the most money possible. Agents want to get the most money possible. I totally get that. But there's also the human side with a guy like Herder, who's made some money in his career. He's made twelve million dollars or so in salary. But if you can sign a deal right now for what I would describe as life changing money like 50, 60, maybe even $70 million guaranteed, that is life-changing money, even for a guy who's made $12 million in his career. Um, that's appealing on some level as just a human being level. Um, so there's that side of the deal um, that can sort of wield some power. I don't have a great feel on whether this, whether, whether it actually gets done or where it actually lands. People always ask me this question. I think less than $85 million is, is that's the Hollinger projection. I think I, I would go less. If, if it gets done... I think it'll be. I think it'll be for less than that. I would guess something in like the four, like something like in, in a bogey range, like 470, 472 would be what I would project if it actually gets done. I don't think Herder's going to take a deal for less than sixty. Um, I don't think the Hawks should give it give a deal out for more than seventy five, probably maybe seventy eight, something like that. So that gives you like a fifteen twenty million dollar range to work with, but uh, generally don't know in terms of the figures and all the facts on this one. But that's the update. And that, uh, again, that, that interview is worth a read on The Athletic for sure from Chris Kirchner. But, uh, yeah, we have until Monday to uh, track that. And at 6 p.m., we will know one way or the other on Kevin Herter. Uh, last thing, news-wise, the Hawks signed E.B. Watson today to what I believe to be the Exhibit 10 contract. Uh, Okafor being waived earlier in the week. 
uh, open up a spot on the training camp roster. Uh, if you're not familiar with this, the Hawks can have as many as 20 players on their camp roster, and they already were carrying 20. So with Okafor gone, they can add somebody else. Um, it's very likely a small guarantee for EB and a pathway to College Park. He, be, he began his college career at Michigan, ended at Dayton, played for the Hawks in Summer League. Interesting long-term guy, good shooter, good athlete in the backcourt. Interesting guy, but I'm not sure you're going to want him on the roster this year, so probably more of a college park guy, developmental piece, and uh, that's the uh, housekeeping on that one. All right, before we get to some mailbag questions, and uh, always, again, thank you for sending those in and keep them coming, a word from our sponsors on the podcast today, and the first of which is Sweatblock. There are a few things in life that just are not any fun to talk about, and one of them is excessive sweating. It's not fun for anyone to sweat through their shirt for no reason. I'm sure we've all dealt with this at some point in time, and while there are definitely bigger problems in the world, it can certainly feel like a big deal when it happens in the moment. And that's why you should check out Sweatblock and Iperspirant Wipes. Sweatblock is stronger and more effective than most clinical antiperspirants. You can simply apply it at night before you go to bed, and then after you go to bed, the next morning you can wake up, wash, and go about your day without worrying at all about sweat. Guaranteed. Sweatblock is doctor-created and doctor-recommended. It works for up to seven days per use. There is also, by the way, a dry shirt guarantee, and if Sweatblock doesn't keep you dry, you get your money back. It's manufactured in the USA. Sweatblock has a bestseller on Amazon and other places for the past decade. I know it might sound too good to be true, but it absolutely works. You can wear what you want to wear with confidence, and it really is an absolute must-have. If you or someone you know and love is dealing with this, you have to check out Sweatblock right now. Get it today for 20% off at sweatblock.com with the promo code locked on or check it out at a CVS near you right now. One more time, that is promo code locked on at sweatblock.com for 20% off. Promo code locked on at sweatblock.com. All right, we'll dive in now to the mailbag. And the first question comes from Terry, who asks It may sound crazy, but with the East being improved this year, is there a non-injury scenario where the Hawks land in the play-in? Okay, so it kind of depends on what non-injury means. Because if the Hawks were actually healthy, like really healthy, it's hard to see that happening, in my opinion. Um, obviously, there are some disaster scenarios with any team. But if Trey and Collins and Capella and some and at least some of the wings are healthy... I can't see them winning like anywhere below like the mid 40s. I would say in wins, even if things go wrong, and that probably is good enough for the six seed. If you start throwing in some absences for you know 15, 20 games for Trey and Capella and Collins, maybe you get there. Especially if you have some separation, like if the bad teams in the East are very bad, and some of the other teams like maybe rise up, like if the Knicks get hot or something like that, or Boston wins 55 games, something like that, to take the wins away. Even with that said, I think I have a hard time seeing it. I will get into this with to sort of a different question in a second. I just can't pick six teams that I can reasonably project ahead of the Hawks unless they have some self-inflicted disasters with, you know, with injuries or something else that could you know go wrong here. Is it like possible that Capella takes a step back and they slip defensively because of that, or that Hunter isn't quite back to where he was last year, or that Cam Reddish isn't quite there yet, or Kevin Herter just kind of stagnates, or Trey, you know battles it a little bit and isn't quite as dominant as he was at times last year. Like there's stuff that you can maybe pick apart as potentially ugly stuff for the Hawks. But even then those are possible and not likely. And you kind of have to have like most of those things or all the things happen at once to not get them to, you know, somewhere in the probably mid forties or higher in terms of wins. So with how good Trey is and John Collins is an offense and how good Capella is defensively with some of the wing talent they have and Nate's coaching defensively, you know, Last year, they did have a similar group talent-wise, and they started 14-20. and 20. Now, granted, they were banged up, and I said that a lot and banged the drum for that, but they were 14-20 last year at one point. 
Um, but still, like they're better now than they were then. Between injury, health, you would imagine being a little bit better. They have even more depth now with guys like DeLon Wright in the mix, um, even Gorky Jang. They have more seasoning from the young guys. They have made it at the helm the entire season. I mean, to answer the question, is it possible we land in a play-in? Sure it is, but I think it's pretty unlikely without actual like you know extended absences to key guys. Um, to that end, so sort of a similar question. I would say it's a different question, but it's a related one from JJ, who asks, there are a bunch of teams that all seem to project between three and six in the East, but somebody has to be in the play-in. Who would you project? Um, I'll say this now. I actually have a podcast that I've already recorded as I'm talking to you now that will drop on Wednesday evening into Thursday with Bill, D- with Bill DeFilippo from Uproxx, who actually is one of my editors over at Dime. We had a lot of fun talking about the top of the East, so this is sort of a preamble to that where we spent about 40 minutes talking about the East and some Hawks talk in there as well with Bill and I. And again, please subscribe to the podcast. But before that, um, my own thoughts quickly here. Um, you know, yes, somebody has to be in the play-in, that's for sure. I think the two teams that are like, pretty much locks barring like mad injuries um, are Milwaukee and Brooklyn, as everybody probably thinks. Um, I think Atlanta and Philly are pretty safe bets to miss the play-in, again, barring disaster. I think Philadelphia's disaster potential is a little bit higher between the Simmons thing and Embiid being a little bit more injury-prone than Trey is, for instance. If they were to lose Embiid for 30 games, that's some trouble for Philadelphia because they just can't afford that. Still, though, I think those four I would project as pretty safe. Um... That means there's two non-play-in spots available between Miami, Boston, Indiana, Chicago, New York, maybe even Toronto or Charlotte beyond that. I am not as high on Miami as some people are. I'll just be honest with you. I think a lot of people are having Miami in that lot category. I can't quite get there for the regular season because the depth is just not there for me. I can definitely see the appeal of their defense when you talk about playing Lowry and Butler and Bam and P.J. Tucker at the same time. That's pretty intriguing. But offensively, it's not great on paper unless they're playing both Hero and Robinson, and those guys hurt their defense quite a bit. And again, they have like eight guys I trust. They have no depth at all. Like Dwayne Devin's probably their best backup other than Tyler Hero. That's not great for the regular season. Um, I think they're going to be pretty good still. Eric Spolster's really good, and I'd probably pick them to make the non-play-in, but not a lock in my mind. Uh, you know, Boston is interesting to me. You know, defensively, they could be pretty ridiculous. When you put a lineup out there with Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Jalen, Jason Tatum, Al Horford, and Robert Williams, that's pretty intriguing defensively. But they have some interesting stuff on the margins with a new head coach. Can they score enough, etc. cetera? You know, Chicago's defense is pretty ugly. Can't really pick them as a result of that. I buy in defense. They do have op- offensive upside for sure with Zach Levine's breakout last year and Vucevic and now adding in uh, DeMar DeRozan, and then you bring in Lonzo Ball, etc. They have some talent on that team. Just defensively, I can't really get there. New York's defense was good last year. You know, they were ter- terrible against the Hawks offensively in that playoff series, and that's the question. So they sort of reacted to that by bringing in Kemba and Evan Fournier. That helps their offense for sure, but they actually, like, really relied on their defense last year, and I think Kemba and Fournier are both, you know, Kemba's pretty bad. Fournier is below average, I would say. Um, that kind of hurts them on the end of the floor. They're well coached, but I think um, not quite what I want there. Indiana is a roster that I actually kind of like in a regular season setting with Rick Carlisle, but you know, the T.J. Warren thing has kind of scared me away. He's a vital part of that team, and he just cannot get healthy right now for the most part. You know, Toronto, Charlotte, I just don't know. Like, Toronto has defensive potential for sure. Like, O.G. Ananobi is a monster. Pascal Siakam, uh, even Scotty Barnes coming in. I like Christian Achua in that small ball center role that he'll be playing. Uh, Fred Van Vliet's good, but I don't know what their mindset is after last year. They might punt if they're not starting out well. Um, Charlotte's just a year away. I think probably still defensively it's kind of a mess there. I do like Lamelo Ball quite a bit, but they still have some roster issues. So anyway, all that said, like 
it's not too clear for me. I do think that I would pick Miami fifth and Boston sixth right now behind uh, the Hawks at third and, and Philadelphia at four. So uh, playing teams, I would say everybody else. So that means Chicago and New York, Indiana, and I'll go Toronto, but Toronto is what I'm least capable of. Even though I like Toronto's over this year, um, I just know that after last year, Masai will pull the ripcord if they don't like what they see because um, they don't really care about the play-in. This is a team that's trying to just like win at a high level. So anyway, that's what I would say for play-in teams and non-play-in teams at this point in time. Could change my mind still uh, with, a, with a, you know, a week to go or so, but uh, there we are on this Tuesday evening into Wednesday. All right, before we get to our last segment on the podcast today, a word from our sponsors, and the first of which is Built Bar. With Built Bar, there are so many delicious flavors that there's always something for everyone, and honestly, it's difficult to pick just one. If you talk to a Built Bar fan, they're always passionate about their favorites, but for me, I have more than one, quite frankly. If you don't know all the Built Bar flavors at this point in time, you're absolutely missing out. They have coconut, they have cherry barcia, raspberry, mint brownie, double chocolate, salted caramel, strawberry, orange, German chocolate, and my personal favorite has to be cookies and cream. It's been that way for a long time, but even with my affection for cookies and cream, there are other options that are honestly just about as good, and really they're fantastic for everyone that enjoys Built Bar. In addition to being extremely tasty, and Built Bar is extremely tasty, they're also very, very healthy. They have 17 to 18 grams of protein, the calorie range is 130 to 180, they only have 4 or 5 grams of sugar, and they only have 4 or 5 grams of net carbs. Amazing flavors all the way across the board, they're all tasty, and they're all healthy. If you order today, they get the grass popper cookie or the raspberry or whatever you like. And if you go to built.com and use the promo code locked on, you're 15% off your order with Built Bar. Use the promo code locked on, 15% off at built.com. Okay, we'll wrap this thing up with at least one more question. And uh, this one comes from Luciano, who asks If you had to guess right now, does Trey Young make the Hall of Fame? It seems like he will. This is what, this is what he's, the question is saying. It seems like he will, but I want to know your thoughts. So, the short answer at the top is that actually, if you made me choose with my life on the line right now, Trey, yes or no in the Hall of Fame, I would say yes, even after three seasons in the league. Now, there's all kinds of context here. Hall of Fame stuff is perilous, and it's interesting thought exercise, obviously not like the most important thing in the world right now, but I think it's pretty interesting to sort of break this down. Um, Obviously, Trey's reached a very high level at a very young age. He made the All-Star team in year two. He's going to have massive counting stats if he can stay healthy for a long time. You know, he already does. For the most part, you know, tons of tons of points, tons of assists. He's been durable. That's also huge in terms of racking up career counting stats. Um, the big thing is that's hard to predict for any single player this early is team success. Clearly, the Hawks were good last season. They made a conference finals run, but I'm talking about like championships one is a big thing in terms of determining Hall of Fame probability for the absolute, you know, for the guys who are not like absolute locks. You will see if you go through the Hall of Fame stuff that I have. You know, guys who got in from the Celtics teams that probably didn't deserve to get in, but they have a bunch of championships. Same thing with the Lakers guys um, in previous decades. Like, there's definitely a curve when it comes to guys who won championships. Um, You don't have to have that. Obviously, guys have gotten in without it, and we'll get in without it again. Like Dwight Howard, um, I guess he has a title. Um, But Dwight Howard, in his prime, didn't really have one. He's going to get in with flying colors. Carmelo Anthony, same thing. Like, you can do it if you're really good for a long time. But that is definitely a helpful thing if you uh, can win at a high level. But just simply put, like the, the path is easier. Um, even without winning, though, and honestly, they obviously could win one either in Atlanta or if he ever were to leave, et cetera. But I think Trey could put together a Hall of Fame ca- case even without um, team success because of his numbers and his accolades individually. So I point out 
always in these conversations, honestly, to the point of annoyance probably if you talk to me offline, that the bar for entry to the Basketball Hall of Fame is way lower than it probably should be, in my opinion, and also lower than, it, than you think it might be. Um, for one, it's the Basketball Hall of Fame, not the NBA Hall of Fame, which is always something to keep in mind. This is a wide-reaching, kind of like a cabal kind of thing. Like The voting is not public. Um, lots of international people, lots of coaches, um, college got college players, uh, men and women, etc. So it's not a strict formula, but still the NBA focused people, you guys see what the baseline is. The famous example for like a low end Hall of Famer NBA wise is Mitch Richmond. Um, he probably doesn't deserve to be there, honestly. It was a great player for a long time, but if, if, if I was redoing the Hall of Fame, it'd be a little bit higher bar. But still, he's in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Mitch made six all, six All-Star teams. He was All-NBA five times. He scored about 20,000 points. Uh, team success, very little other than a, a, a late ring as a ring chaser in, with the Lakers when he was like basically not even on the team. I mean, he was kind of around, but not a, not a huge rotation piece for them. So other than that, um, kind of a stats-based, rep-based kind of inclusion. And he was really good for a long time. I mean, it's not even me pouring anything on Richmond. It's just that I don't think he's a Hall of Famer when you, when you pop that in your mind. So... With that said, like it's not all it's not all about just like beating Mitch Richmond <laughs> when it comes to profile, but that can kind of help. Um, Trey's, I will say this: it may not do a ton for him, but Trey did have a very memorable college season. It's only one season, but he led the country in points and assists. That might help him a little bit down the line. He was All American college; it's sort of like a tiebreaker thing, but it might help him. Also, I do think, despite the uh, snubs to this point, that Trey will play on the national team for the U.S. at some point, and usually that helps as well. Gold medals are helpful, and the, and the uh, Team USA is always the favorite to do that. So it may not be a lock, but it definitely could help him alongside. Um, Stat-wise, Trey has scored almost 5,000 points already in his career in three seasons, even with one of those seasons being shortened, um, actually two of them being shortened versus the 82 games, and he has about 1,800 assists as well. Um, for reference, about 7,000 assists in your career will get you to top 20 all-time. So Trey's about a quarter of the way to that already to be top 20 all-time in assists. Um, and he's also a hugely prolific scorer. So 20,000 points, I mentioned that before with Mitch Richmond, I would say 95% or higher of guys who scored 20,000 points in the NBA are in the Hall of Fame. There are some examples of guys who are not. Um, Anton Jameson barely got there. He won't get in the Hall of Fame. But guys who are multifaceted like Trey, if you score 20,000 points, if you're Trey Young, you're probably going to get in the Hall of Fame. So he's already a quarter of the way to that as well. And he's 23 years old. He just turned 23 years old. So nothing is assured. The numbers have to be compiled over a long period of time, and you probably need to have individual accolades too. So he should have been an all-star last year. That's such a brutal thing that he wasn't, but he got one two years ago. He probably has to get, you know, seven, eight, nine all-star selections to get in. You know, famously seven-time all-star Joe Johnson is going to have an interesting Hall of Fame case along the line. He's got, he's got, the, he's got the scoring in the all-star teams and nothing else for Joe. But if you're like a 10-time all-star, you're probably getting into the Hall of Fame. Um, All-NBA is a little bit different. And honestly, I think All-NBA should be more of the bar than All-Star teams, but All-Star teams do matter in the grand scheme of things. Um, Basketball Reference has a Hall of Fame probability estimator that they sort of um, update. It's a stat-based thing. It doesn't really start for players that are as young as Trey. You kind of have to have the counting stats to get into the conversation, so it's not going to apply to him at this point in time who's at age 23, but it's a good baseline to kind of tell you the active players that are going to get in the Hall of Fame. Clearly, there are a bunch of guys who are 90% or higher. That's LeBron is already a lock. Chris Paul is a lock. Kevin Durant's a lock. Um, James Harden, Steph Curry, Russell Westbrook, Dwight Howard, Carmelo Anthony, Anthony Davis, and Dame Lillard are all 90% or higher, which does make sense if you go through it. You know, Harden, 
um, has the ridiculous stats. Steph has titles, stats, MVPs. Russ was an MVP, has massive stats. Dwight was the top three player in the league for a while and has great stats. Melo has been scoring forever and ever and ever, is an easy Hall of Famer. AD has title now and, uh, you know, accolades. And then Dame has the profile um, that's like, you know, just stats and all NBA appearances, etc. Then a bunch of guys who are also 50% or higher already in their career. You know, Giannis is well on his way with multiple MVPs. Clay Thompson, Kyrie Irving, Kawhi Leonard is a finals MVP. Um, Paul George, Kyle Lowry are all kind of on the pace there. Not like locks, but certainly in the mix. So that kind of tells you where you have to get to be at least somewhere in the mix for Hall of Fame stuff. And, you know, Trey's not the only guy that I would project that's a current, that's a current player to make the Hall of Fame. You have to have longevity, but like I pretty much would pick almost everyone that is like a current NBA, you know, all NBA kind of guy to probably get there. If they're all, if they're already like an all NBA level player in their early twenties, that's usually a pretty good sign that you're well on your way. Like Joel Embiid, if he can stay healthy, is probably going to be in the hall of fame. I don't know if he can stay healthy, but he probably be in the hall of fame. Luka Doncic probably going to make the hall of fame between his international stuff and his stats and all that stuff. Jason Tatum is an interesting one. I don't know how it's going to go. Like Nikola Jokic, is probably going to be in the Hall of Fame. He's already MVP of the league. He's still relatively young, international stuff, etc. Um, you know, there's not all these like uber locks, but you can sort of see you have to check multiple boxes. But if you check those boxes, it's a pretty clear path to the Hall of Fame. So for me, the biggest swing on Trey is how long he can play because he's a small point guard. And usually those guys don't age incredibly well. You know, Chris Paul accepted. But I do think that Trey, as young as he is, you know, no pun intended, um, and the greatest shape that he's in, plus he's so skilled, he should be able to play and play at a high level for a long time. Um, if you go beyond that, winning a title or two would obviously bolster the resume and make it even like clearer. But all that said, like I, I would certainly pick him to make the Hall of Fame. It is not anything where I'm saying it's a, it's a done deal. He's played three seasons in the NBA. You have to be good for a long time to get in the Hall of Fame. But I think he will be good for a long time. And if you go by the stats and you go by with the baseline and guys like Mitch Richmond, you know, you can pass that with a little bit lower bar than you might think. So I think Trey, you know, is on that path. That's pretty darn impressive for a player in year three on the Atlanta Hawks. You know, Dominique's in the Hall of Fame, of course, and uh, he'd be the last, he'd be the, the first Hawk since then, basically, that was at least the primary Hawk. Um, you know, Dikembe Mutombo's in the Hall of Fame, but he was obviously a multi-player, a multi-franchise player. Uh, Moses Malone, same thing. So um, primary Hawks in the Hall of Fame recently, it's basically just Neek and Neek. Um, I do think that you might get into, uh, there's actually some pretty nuanced cases for like Al Horford and Joe Johnson. Uh, I don't know if they're going to get in or not, but I do think that Trey Young is on the path. Hopefully that answers the question. And I went kind of long on that one, so I'm going to cut that off here. Um, again, I have a podcast coming on Wednesday evening into Thursday. I'm actually traveling the rest of this week, so uh, those are pre-recorded. I will have a podcast after the game on Thursday night. Uh, I'm not sure when it's going to drop. It might be late into the evening there as I watch the game after I'm done with all of my work stuff, but it'll be the fifth show of the week. Uh, this this podcast, plus a two-part episode that I recorded with Tyler Jones earlier this week that dropped on the podcast feed. So you have th- those two podcasts with Tyler, this podcast, Bill DeFilippo joining me tomorrow, and then a game recap at the end of the week from the Hawks preseason finale on Thursday at home. So please subscribe to the podcast. Please tell a friend about the show, and we'll see you next time.